I was actually 35,000 feet over the Atlantic, actually the North Atlantic, <clears throat> just about asleep. It was approximately 4 o'clock German time. It was nearly two months ago. And I have, uh, to be honest, I have a difficult time sleeping in airplanes. I don't know if it's because of my size or just, I like to lay down to sleep. And I'm sitting there just kind of dazing a little bit. And the captain of the airplane comes over the announcer and says, ladies and gentlemen, I have the pleasure and the sorrow to announce that the President of the United States has just announced that the, lib the war for the liberation of Kuwait has commenced. I'm 35,000 feet over the North Atlantic heading toward the Middle East at that point. And I remember that one thing I did do was wake up. <laughs> I didn't keep dozing off and I was looking out the window and I looked out the window for about three hours. I looked out the window as the sun came up. And when you're heading to a war zone as many of your friends, maybe even relatives who were over there did, it makes you think about ultimate realities. What in the world is going to happen? See, I was aiming for, I had a ticket to Jordan and then I was supposed to go overland into Baghdad. If I'd gone a week earlier, I probably would have got in. But I was a week late and I didn't get in. But at that point, I was still determined to try and get into Baghdad. And I remember sitting for, for hours, just looking out the window, thinking, you know, I'm in this nice little comfortable airplane, eating all this nice food, being served by relatively decent TWA stewardesses. <clears throat> and, and there were my fellow countrymen in F-15s in A-10s, in F-117 stealth fighters, and F-111 fighter bombers, in other airplanes, <clears throat> in the same dark sky, but in a very different situation, going into what has been described the largest fireworks display ever. And they didn't know if they were going to go back. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the Iraqis too, because I know the Iraqis. I know most of them didn't want the war. They would say that on television because, you know, who wants to go to prison because of a CNN reporter, okay? So they'd say what Saddam Hussein wanted them to say. <clears throat> but they didn't want to go to war either. And they were there watching F-111s and F-15s and everything come buzzing in on them. And their world was blowing up. I'm sitting in this nice, comfortable airliner. The only problem with this airliner was it had a big red tail with white letters saying TWA and we were landing at Frankfurt on the way. I was more concerned about terrorists in Frankfurt than I was in the Middle East to be honest. But I was thinking, you know, there are people dying right now. There are people risking their lives for both sides. What would it like to be there? I had said goodbye to my wife and kids. I had talked with them and told them that I might not come back. We had dealt with that. Now I had to deal with the reality of war as I headed there. And it does things to you, you know. It makes at least me ask questions. What is life really all about? Let's get real. My, my five-year-old son, he's great. Um, we've been in the States now for, I think, nine months. And I'm, I'm a practical joker. I love to tease him. I love to tickle him. I love to attack him. I love to do just about anything I can think of to have fun. One day my, my son came home from school and I was teasing him. He said, Dad, get real! Whoa! And I, I began thinking, you know, is my son going to grow up thinking that I'm not real? That I'm just a practical jokester all the time? 
And when I was sitting in that airplane, I, I was getting real, to be honest, my friends. Thinking about reality, thinking about life. What in the bottom line is really worth living for anyway? Where am I in my life with God, in my walk? Where am I in other people's eyes and am I where they see me to be? Or am I living a lie? And, and those things were going through my head as I went to the Middle East and they haven't stopped going through my head. I come back here and, and I meet with Christians and I, I've been speaking crazy like five, six times a week in churches. Then I come here Monday morning and we have a speaker, a speaker of a different sort, Dr. Hathut. And I want to just give you a little feedback, personal feedback on Dr. Hathut. I understand Dr. Hathut. I understand Islam. And of all the Islamic people in the world, I understand Egyptians very, very well. And he was an Egyptian. He lived in Kuwait for a number of years, but he's an Egyptian. And I want to be honest with you. I have always been challenged by Muslims. In all of my years of dealing with them, I've always been challenged by them. And I was challenged listening to Dr. Hathut. I was challenged for these reasons. One is his friendliness. Did you pick it up? You didn't get the feeling that he had a sword and he's about to stab you, did you? I have always been challenged by Islamic friendliness. When I went to the Middle East, I went to um, Egypt and to Syria, I had a traveling companion, a NASA engineer, actually he's a specialist on the F-18. Can you imagine a NASA engineer, a specialist on the F-18 going into the Middle East, trying to keep up on the war and how the F-18's doing in the war? First airplane to get shot down was an F-18. Okay, so he's keeping up with the war and keeping it, you know, and he gets very tied up into the whole war and, and gets excited for what's going on. But he had a problem. You know what his problem was? As he traveled through Egypt and as he traveled through negative terrorist haven Syria, he was blown away by the friendliness of the Arab people and the Muslims. And, and it really caused a real difficulty for him. You know, how can I hate this guy and he be so nice to me? How can I be involved in a war? And, and he really struggled with that. And I personally have always been challenged by the hospitality of Muslims. Many, many times I've gone to visit a Muslim friend and he has fed me and fed my family and then I've later to learn they've given me all the food that they had for a whole week. And they and their children go without food because of their hospitality toward me. I've never left my family in the inner city of Cairo and worried about them because I always knew that everyone around them would protect them much more than they would in California. The friendliness of the Islamic people, the Muslim people as a whole, is remarkable. That's a challenge for me. Secondly, his knowledge, Dr. Hathut is no slouch intellectually. Did you pick that up? He's a sharp guy. He knew what he was talking about. We of course disagree with him on many points, but he knew what he was talking about. We sometimes get the picture of a Muslim as someone running around with a sword, hitting himself in the head and looking for someone else to poke. <laughs> but Dr. Hathut wasn't that. And by the way, many, many Muslims I met all over the world are not that. I was on a bus traveling through the center of Syria talking to a young man who's just about to graduate as a pharmacist, a very knowledgeable young man. We were able to communicate very intellectually about the gospel and about Islam. I've always been challenged by these 15-year-old boys I meet who've memorized the whole Quran. And the Quran is just a little shorter than the New Testament. They're not necessarily intellectual 
slouches. As a matter of fact, we have them to thank, the Arabs especially, a little bit for saving classical Greek and for inventing algebra and a whole lot of other things. For those of you who hate algebra, you can blame them. So his friendliness, his knowledge, his commitment to serve God, that man's a doctor. He could be making a lot of money. But he's laid his job aside for the most part to proclaim the religion that he follows. Anyone who will go through Islamic law and follow it to the nth degree, trying to gain favor before God, has got to be committed. I look at them and I, I just marvel that for something that's so wrong, they will do it and they will do it, they will get up. Do you know what it's like to get up at 3.30 in the morning to pray? How many people do it here? No, don't do that because the Lord said if you pray, go into your closet, don't, don't show off, okay? I don't, but they would, many of them, get up to pray and they pray five times a day. They do all of these things that, that are quite rigorous at times, especially the fast of Ramadan. Their commitment to serve God. His commitment to serve God. He's a real man seeking God. Fourthly, his fear of God. You asked him a little bit about that, Rob. I am always tremendously challenged by Muslims and their reverence, their fear for Allah. Of course, they're absolutely afraid of him. They don't know what he's going to do. He said that. He's, he's the creator. He's the author. Who knows what he's going to do? But they fear him. They prostrate themselves. They bow before him. They work hard as a result of that fear. And you know, one thing I've never seen, I've never seen Allah is my boyfriend music in the Arab world. Like I often hear Jesus is my boyfriend music in the West. I remember one thing I do a lot is travel around to different areas of the Muslim world and, and speak to missionaries. And one thing I like to ask missionaries or ask Christians is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And this one young guy, basically your age, working in a Muslim country, I asked him, who is Jesus to you? He was not with our mission, okay? A disclaimer to begin with. Who is Jesus to you? He says, well, I picture Jesus this way. You know, I wake up in the morning, and I sit up, and there's Jesus at the end of the bed. And I say, good morning, Jesus. And Jesus says, good morning to me. And then I say, how are you, Jesus? And Jesus says, fine, how are you? And I say, well, I've got a headache or whatever. And then Jesus says to me, what can I do for you today? And I looked at this young man and I said, okay, now what do you really believe about Jesus? He says, no, I'm honest. That's, what I, that, you know, that's how I picture Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend. Jesus is my, my um, great Santa Claus who can meet my need. A lot of our music, a lot of our, our feelings and our pop culture about Jesus is just like that. But you'll never see a Muslim who relates to God that way. And I respect that, to be honest. I'm challenged by that. His fear of God and also his fearlessness of man. Do you realize how much guts it took for him to stand up here and do what he did? How many of you would like to go speak in an Islamic university? in front of 800 students and do what he did. That took some guts. And I've always been impressed wherever I go around the world how bold Muslims are for what they believe. How fearless they are in confronting others who are confronting them. I'm impressed by that. I'm a missionary. It's my job to, like Star Trek, go beyond where others have gone and, and to tell people about Jesus. But sometimes, you know, they're more bold than I am. And I'm tremendously challenged by that. So 
in a positive vein, I was challenged by Dr. Hathud, as I've always been challenged by Muslims, because of his friendliness. And they are a friendly people. Don't believe the media. There are some violent people out there. There are a lot of violent people in Los Angeles, by the way. His knowledge, his commitment to serve God, his fear of God, his fearlessness of man. But you know, as I listened to that man speak, my heart broke. Because the thing that impressed me more than anything was his lostness. His absolute lostness and deception about the truth of God. And it was clear, it was evident, and because I know more about Islam, it was even clearer in what he didn't say. I just want to go through a few quick things. Rob has mentioned a couple of them, just to help you um, understand. He's talking about the superiority of Islam. The superiority of Islam is in that it gives a law. And it gives a law that tells you exactly what you should do. It covers all areas of life. Then he said this amazing statement. I almost fell over, but I was sitting next to the Syrian fellow who was with him, so I didn't dare do that. It said, the law sometimes must supersede morality. Do you remember he said, you know, if, if you get your cheek struck, you know, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. But obviously, if you took that to court, the judge wouldn't rule that way. So sometimes morality is nice, but the law is more important. Morality is what determines what is right. And he's willing to throw morality out for a law. How can that be? Did you notice that he talked a lot about what you must do? He never once, once mentioned the love of God. The love of God is non-existent to a Muslim. A Muslim has 99 names for God, most of which he's got out of the Quran. But one of them that is conspicuously absent is love. There's no knowledge of God the Creator as a loving Creator. There was no mention of the Word of God. He did not mention the Old Testament and the New Testament. A very sly move, by the way. Because one of the first things Muslims say overseas when you're dealing with them, and you try and get them in the Bible, is they say, it's corrupt. It's been changed. The Jews have changed the Old Testament, and Christians have changed the New Testament. He talked a lot about the greatness of the Quran, but he said he didn't say what he believes about your Bible, that it's no good anymore that it's been changed by you and by others. He mentioned grace when you were talking about paradise, Rob. That was technically wrong. Muslims do not have a word. Arabic does not have a word for grace. Not the kind of concept we have for grace. There is no grace in Islam. There is only mercy. And a Muslim comes before Allah and begs for forgiveness, for mercy. But he has no concept of grace, the grace which reaches down to a sinful man, a man who is totally sinful. Dr. Hathut would say, I only need mercy for the wrong things I've done. But for the great things I've done, the good things I've done, I don't need the mercy of God because I'm okay. There is no depravity in man. There is no sin. Really, it's only the sinful things I do. There is no concept of grace in Islam, only mercy for certain sins. And as Rob mentioned, there's no assurance of salvation. As Dr. Hathut said, it's up to the owner. It's up to the owner whether I go to paradise or not. And if I had been in a debate with Dr. Hathut, I would have said, Dr. Hathut, tell me, if from the time you were a child, you kept the law, you kept the law of Islam, 
you kept it perfectly, you never broke the law once, would you be guaranteed that you could go to paradise? You know what he would have said? No. Dr. Hathut, if you had been a profligate, living in sin, living in adultery, living in every kind of wicked, vile thing, and you've never learned to say no, as he kept saying, and you cried out for mercy one minute before you died, could you go to paradise? You know what he'd say? Yes. So Dr. Hathut, what you're telling me is the worst sinner could live the worst sinful life all of his life and go to paradise, and the best man who kept the law perfectly could go to hell? And he'd say, yes. So even in his law, there is no hope and there is no assurance because there's no concept of grace and forgiveness. There's no concept of a savior and a redeemer. And probably the most significant thing he didn't mention when he was talking to you was the cross. I was really surprised when he was talking about the things that divide us. Now, of course, he, he did touch on the deity of Christ and said that the Christ is not God. And that is crucial. He did touch on saying that the Jews are not a chosen race. And if we don't have that, we throw our Bibles out. But he didn't touch on the fact that they do not believe that Jesus was crucified. There is no redemption, there is no salvation in Islam. There is only a faint and uncertain hope of mercy. And that's all he had to offer you. And as I listened to that man, to be honest, I broke. I broke for him. I hurt for him. Because here he is, an intelligent man, a nice man, proclaiming his religion without hope, without a God of love, without a Savior who has died for him. Is that how you felt? That was my major feeling for that man. And that is my major feeling for Muslims all over the world. But, and please, hold on to your seats because I'm going to rattle you just a little. And, and I really do believe in rattling you to make you think. I was really fascinated that as he went through all the doctrinal differences, you all sat there and said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you were quite receiving. You were a great bunch, okay? I was really proud of you. You were quite receptive. Apparently, Rob had prepared you well for what he was going to say, and you, you didn't, I didn't sense any tension until the very last few minutes when Rob said, what about the Gulf War? And then he said some things that I could just feel the temperature in this room rise. And you all know what I feel, or what I'm talking about. You got tense. Now, I understand you weren't prepared for that. You didn't expect it. I also understand that you've just gone through a war. Maybe someone here has lost a loved one, and it's a very serious business. But what struck me was that you were able to sit there and listen to a man talk about false doctrine, a man talk about lives that, lies that come straight from hell and not react. But when he started to talk about your country, you got tense. And I really started wondering about that. And it's something to be very honest. And the rest of the time, I just want to be transparent with you. I'm going to be honest with you. I may get in trouble for being honest. Um, I think most speakers who come up here are very honest. I want to be honest with you. It's something that troubles me. Ever since I've come back to the United States, 
I am not an Arab lover in the sense that I like Arabs over the, the Jews at all. I used to go to a Jewish synagogue when I was in seminary. Okay? I'm committed to the Jewish people. I'm not an Arab lover in the sense that I don't love my home country. I love the United States and I love Americans. But one thing I've noticed as I've come back and as I've begun to speak about things that, that rattle us, what we get most rattled about as evangelical Christians in the United States is our government and our politics. And that troubles me. Turn with me to Matthew 13. Two of the smallest parables in all of the scriptures. Matthew 13. Verses 44 and 45. Two small parables, only one verse each. You can memorize the whole parable. It's great. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus teaches this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. My question for you is, which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom do you respond to? What is the most important thing to you? And I really believe that most of you are committed to the kingdom of God. So please, I'm not coming down on you. I just want to make you think. Jesus gave us two little parables. And in those parables, I have thought about these parables for years. Actually, 1981, God blasted me with them. And I've been thinking about them ever since. This first one is about a man who finds a treasure in a field. And, you know, he just gets kind of excited about that treasure. It's a tremendous treasure. So what does he go and do? He goes and he sells everything he's got. He gives up everything in order to get the money to buy the field so that he can have the treasure. But I like the second parable. It's the parable of the pearl freak. The pearl freak. Now, my wife doesn't like jewelry that much, but jewelry's okay. To be honest, I could care less about jewelry. So I can't relate to this guy. I've seen pearls, and you know, they're nice little round, shiny things, but it's a pearl. But this guy's really into pearls, and he's a pearl freak. And it says here, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding just one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I, I can imagine me coming home to my wife today and saying, I found a pearl, and what a pearl it is. So I'm going to sell all your clothes, and I'm going to sell the car, and I'm going to sell the house, and I go up to my five-year-old son, who's become a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, like I can't stop it, I mean, since he's been here, and, and I say, John, I'm going to sell your Game Boy that Grandma gave you for Christmas. And then I go to my oldest daughter, and Crystal, I'm going to take your dog, your little dog, and I'm going to sell that dog, because I have found this incredible pearl. I mean, it is the most beautiful pearl you've ever seen. Do you know what my family would do? Back! They'd think I'd flipped. They'd call the local Christian counselor and say, hey, can we make an appointment? But that's what this guy does in the parable. Because of that pearl, which is of tremendous price, everything else pales before that pearl. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that. In comparison with the kingdom of God, everything pales. 
and the kingdom of God and, and the righteousness of Christ and obedience to what God would have us to do should be the thing that overwhelms us, controls us, drives us. Because that's how great the kingdom of God is. That's how great our king is. Hello. I was afraid of that. I move around too much. Let me get this out. Put this in my pocket. That's how great the kingdom of God is. It's worth everything. Is that true in your life? The response I felt, and I may be wrong, but the response I felt seemed to indicate maybe otherwise. What is most important to you right now? The kingdom of God or the American flag? And I'm not denigrating the American flag. Please don't get me wrong. What is most important to you? The people of your nation or the people of the world who are in mass are going to hell? Billions of them. What is most important to you? I want to be transparent. I really want to be honest with you. Turn with me just quickly to a verse, Ephesians 4.25. And to be honest, this isn't what I wanted to share with you. Last night I kind of had a problem because as I was preparing this message, I wasn't really happy with the way it was going. I was going to give you a strong call to missions. But I, to be honest, I'm giving you a strong call to get real as believers. Ephesians 4.25 says this, I was thinking this on the way down here. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. How are you relating to one another in this campus? How do you relate with one another in your church? Are you real? Are you really a person who is driven by the kingdom of God and kingdom things? who is driven to know Jesus above all else? Or are you one who's pretending that when it's convenient? Are you real? Where is your heart? I was really struck the first week I came back from Egypt by this issue. I spoke in a church, and it's a church that supports us, and this church asked me, Orville, would you tell us what has gone on over the last seven years Tell us about the great things God has done. So I began to go over the last seven years, the things that God has done. And we have seen God do incredible things, things that have never, ever happened in that part of the world. We left behind the largest missionary team ever put together, ever, at least currently, in that part of the world, in the Arab world. We saw more people come to Christ than anyone else has in Egypt in recent years. I could go on and on and on and on, and God has done great things. But God has, through it all, shown me that I am a sinful man. That I don't even know what my motives were for doing what I had done. And last April, almost a year ago, I came very close to committing adultery. I came one step away from falling into adultery. And I felt if I was going to be honest with this church that supports me, I've got to say to them, brothers and sisters, God has done incredible things. But it's all to his glory because I have learned who I really am. He has used me in a mighty way. 
But that's due to his grace alone. I am a sinner. And this is how bad of a sinner is. I, I am. I came just one millisecond away from committing adultery. And that church broke because they looked up to me so much. And afterwards, I walked out of that church and I walked up to the pastor and, he's, and we, we had this line of people going through. I mean, half the people were in tears saying, thank you for being honest. That's what I need to hear. You know, I need to hear about reality, all this kind of stuff. And as I've gone all over the United States, I've heard the same kind of thing. But the pastor, a good friend of mine, came up and said, Orville, that wasn't wise. And I said, what wasn't wise? It wasn't wise for you to say that. That will hurt your reputation. And I said, Pastor, I have no reputation. The only reputation I have, the only righteousness I have is what Christ has given me. And if I'm ever going to err, I'm going to err on the side of honesty. Speak truth with one another. What are you really like? What do you like when you go home at night? Into bed. Maybe you've aced an exam. I was a pretty good student here, and I graduated nearly right at the top of my class in Dallas Seminary. But when I went home at night, I knew deep down in my heart, when I slowed down, that I was serving myself, not God. That I was putting on a great big show for everyone else around me to see. My classmates, the people in my church, the only person I couldn't fool was my wife, and I was scared to death that she was going to tell somebody the truth. What do you like when you go home and you're in bed at night, quiet? Are you real with God? Are you broken, flat on your face, saying, God, I am a sinner? I have failed you in so many ways today. But I thank you for your love and your grace, which Dr. Hathut knows nothing of. How are you in relating to one another? Come on, guys, girls, when you go out. You know, are you walking in the light? Are you walking in purity? Or are you blowing it? I know what you're doing. Some of you are maintaining righteous standards, but many of you are blowing it. And then coming back to school or walking around the next day, putting on a tremendous show. Perfect little Miss Christian or perfect little Mr. Christian. But God sees you. God knows. Get real, okay? The hardest thing I have to handle in my own life is my sin. The second hardest thing that I find to handle is a person who lies to me or puts on a show. You know, I will break with someone who's breaking. I will. Saturday, we had a lady come over to our house, and she just started sharing about how her marriage is falling apart and, and the sinful things she's done in her marriage. And, you know, I could have said, Oh, you sinner, what are you doing? Just blew her out of her house. But I, I couldn't do that because I broke. I feel so much with her. Whose kingdom are you seeking? I mean, really, honestly, whose kingdom are you seeking? Are you living for yourselves? 
Or are you living for the Lord Jesus? Sincerely, honestly. A verse back in 1983 that God just bore through my heart with and basically said, Orville, but I am afraid lest the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. You should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Are you living a simple and pure, devoted life to Christ? Or are you playing a game? Brothers and sisters, I get the feeling as I walk around that many of you are playing a game. I'm not impressed. You don't impress others usually. God is certainly not impressed. But if God can in grace nail me and open me up, he can certainly do it with you. I've got lots of hope. And the tool that God used to bring reality to my life, at least some Christian reality, I'm not saying I walk in the light all the time. I'm not saying I'm always honest. I have to struggle. I have to pursue. I have to run. But the verses that God used in my life are in Philippians chapter 3. And just turn with them quickly. Turn to them quickly with me. There are so many things I wanted to share today, and obviously there's no time and I can't do it. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul's gone on and said all of the things that he was as a Jew. I mean, he had Dr. Hathut looking like, like um, the biggest pagan in the world. I mean, he did everything according to the law. He was perfect. But Paul writes in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The first thing that Paul did was say, All of those things that made me look good, all of the facades that I had constructed to impress everyone and hopefully impress God. I've moved those over from the, the gain column to the loss column. I've counted them as loss. And to be honest, most of us Christians end right there. We get theologically correct, realizing that there's nothing in us that is good, that we have no real righteousness, so we say all of that stuff is bad. Yeah, that's bad. So I'm going to reckon it. I'm just going to kind of move it over as bad. And then we stop there. And we go on and live our normal, everyday life. But Paul doesn't stop at verse 7. He goes on. He says this. More than that, above that, more importantly than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's that crazy crazy pearl merchant not only the things that were good for me but everything in comparison with Jesus is loss and I reckon it to be so for whom and this is the next step three step I reckon the things that are for me that I did that were good that everyone was impressed by all those things are gone not only that but everything is gone in comparison with knowing Jesus then he goes on and says for whom I have in fact, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Think of Dr. Hathud. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, not only did I say, okay, now all the things my theology teaches that I'm a sinner and that all of my righteousness is filthy rags, and so it's all bad, so I'm going to move it over to the bad column. It's not the good. But Paul says, not only the things that, you know, my, my uh, facade, my faces, my games I play with people are bad, 
Not all the nice little things I do in church, speak in chapel, whatever you do. But everything in comparison with knowing Jesus is nothing. But Paul goes on to say, in fact, I have lost all things. We Christians like to say, I'm willing to if God calls me. I'm willing to do this if God shows me. I'm willing. But the Bible talks about willingly obeying him and doing what he says, regardless of the cost. Paul put his reckoning into practice in his own life. And then verse 10 is what kind of just grabbed a hold of my heart. And if I have a live verse, it's this verse. It's not the one I used last time I spoke. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, everything in my life is aimed toward one thing and that's knowing Jesus. And that I might know the real Jesus, not the candy-coated Jesus of the prosperity doctrine. And we all could get on the bandwagon. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Amen, brother. Preach it. I want it. Notice him. Say no, no. Notice your sinful flesh. No, no. To be able to raise up, be raised up in power and raise the dead and preach the gospel without fear. Yeah, we all want that, right? Is there anybody who doesn't want it? Anybody who's honest? No, I'm kidding. We all want that, of course. But he goes on and he says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. To know Jesus is to know power and to know suffering. There is no Jesus without suffering. Jesus is eternally the Lamb of God as well as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he's also the suffering servant. And for Paul, everything paled in the knowledge of Jesus and the pursuit of that knowledge and the living out of a life that was Christ-like. There's nothing more important to him. Is that true for you? I mean, let's be real. Is that where you really are? It's easy to fake it. It's easy to preach it. But is that true? Is that what motivates your heart? Biblical Christianity is all about that. Being real. And I want to be real with you and honest with you. I look at all of you young people. It wasn't too many years ago I was sitting up there and I was always in the back row because it was most convenient to, to avoid Dr. Duncan's look when I was way up in the back row. And then I could always look down on the speaker too. It was quite convenient actually. But I was always up there with you guys in the back row. It's a great place to be. Um, I, I know what it's like to be there. I know what it's like to sit in the chairs you're sitting in. I sat in them. I wondered if I'd ever graduate from Los Angeles Baptist College. Then I went to Dallas and got even more preachers and wondered if I'd ever get out of that context, to be honest. Wondered if I'd ever graduate. You know what I feel. You know, you know what I felt. I got out in the world, and, and to be honest, I wasn't all that I was cracked up to be. My degrees didn't do anything for me. And God had to slam me down before him 
He had to break me. He had to show me my sin before he could use me. And I wish that all of the years I was sitting in the chairs you're sitting in and sitting in the chairs at Dallas Seminary that I had been in that position. Because to some degree they were wasted years. But something else God had to show me was that life, if it's worth living at all, is worth giving. Because to be Christ-like, you've got to give. Life is not for the purpose of receiving. You put on facades, you put on acts so that people can, what, give you things. You look nice. Oh, you're a nice Christian. Oh, could you be my friend? Oh, can we do this? Can we do that? The purpose of life is forgiving. Not to forgive, though you must forgive, but forgiving. To lay your life down in the service of the king for others who don't know him. Let's be real, brothers and sisters. Are we being real with one another? Laying aside all falsehood, let's speak truth with one another. Are you being real in your churches or are you playing games with God, with yourselves, with others? If you get real, you'll find out that everyone else, including doc the Dr. Hathouts of this world, are real. And you'll find out that that pearl of great price that is yours is not theirs. And that's a very, very serious issue. The only reason to live that I know, and I, I think that I'm being absolutely transparent with you, the only reason I know in all the world to live is to love Jesus and to know him and to be like him. There's no other reason I know for living. To know Jesus and secondly, to make him known. Turn with me to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I know you've heard it and you're bored with it. When I was in seminary, I said I'd never preach on the Great Commission because I heard it so many times I got sick of it. Well, here I go. Verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had, had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. <laughs> you guys worship Jesus? Let's get real. You guys just sat here and sang great worship songs. Rob said it's great to worship Jesus. But are you doubtful? Are you doubtful that maybe Jesus is worth giving everything for? Are you a pearl merchant, a crazy pearl merchant who's found the pearl of great price? Has the knowledge of Jesus surpassed everything in your life? The desire to know him? Or are you doubtful? Some of these people were doubtful. Jesus spoke to them any, anyway, and he said, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Dr. Hathut denies that the authority of God rests in Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And basically, in the name of that authority, I send you out as your authority, as your master, the master's college. I send you out. And you have a job to do, Christians, followers, disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. As I said in the missions class Monday night, there's a lot of debate because I know that the, the imperative here is make disciples. And go is not an imperative. 
And so there's debate whether it's a, a command go or as you're going. And a lot of people work, work and get worked up about it. And they write papers and they have debates. But it's a nonsensical debate to me, to be honest. I hope no one's involved in that debate here. Because it says, make disciples of what? All the nations. I think that rather demands that we go. Because I don't know how we're going to make disciples of all the nations without going. And it's a command. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name. And this is where Dr. Hatut falls flat on his face again, isn't it? Of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Dr. Hatut denies the word of God. But Jesus says it's your job to go out into all the world and teach them the full counsel of God. This, the very thing Dr. Hatut denies. And then Jesus says this incredible thing. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's no passage that makes me spiritually soar to the heights more than Romans 8 at the end. There's nothing, no nothing, no nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Sword, death, the, the uh, spiritual world, nothing can separate me from the love of God. We are super conquerors, the Greek could be translated, through him who has loved us. And Jesus, when he made that great command and told us to go into all the world, said, I will go with you. Nothing will separate you from me. Now, let me be real one more time. Rob stole a little my thunder, but I'll thunder anyway, okay? When I was traveling around Syria, I did have the privilege one morning of speaking to all the missionaries in that country, all five of them, one man and four women. By the way, I thank God for the women on the mission field. But as I traveled around that country, and I went to Hama, and Hamas, and Halab, and Ladqiya, and Tartus, and many, many villages and towns I didn't even know the names of, what kept haunting me and haunting me and haunting me was that all five missionaries in, in the whole country were in a little suburb of Damascus. And these areas had never, ever heard the gospel before. There are a, a handful of Syrian evangelicals who are trying to share up in a town called Aleppo in Arabic Halim. But beyond that, there is no outreach in that country at all. And I was able to travel freely throughout that land. The war is going on. There are F-111 fighter bombers going overhead. But travel freely throughout that country was never stopped. I never had anyone say anything rude to me. I was able to share the gospel freely with the people. It wasn't closed at all. And when the missionaries were telling me, well, you know, the secret police of Hafez al-Assad, how many people saw 60 Minutes Sunday night? I just heard about it. Apparently he was talking about how, how wicked Hafez al-Assad is in his torture ch chambers. And no, no doubt he is. But they're saying, you know, you've got to be really careful as a missionary because they may nail you and, you know, they're, they're, they play hardball out there. So I said, when was the last time a missionary was arrested in Syria? They said, uh, uh, 
Really don't know. Maybe the 50s or the 60s. My heart breaks for that country as I've traveled around it. My heart breaks for Iraq. They were our enemies. But my heart breaks for those people. You know, those however many hundreds of thousands died in the war. I don't believe it was 20,000 at all. They'll never have the opportunity to hear. My prayer is that never again in history do 100, 200, 300,000 Iraqis go to hell without having had even the opportunity to hear. Let's get real. This student body could turn the world upside down. If 12 disciples, and they were fishermen and tax gatherers, I mean, they were real people. If they could turn the world upside down, what could you do? If you were lit on fire for a desire to know Jesus and know him above all else, if you were lit on fire for the sake of the kingdom and the things that the kingdom of God means in this world, and that's the spread of the gospel and the discipleship of the nations, what could you do? And as I stand before you today, that's what I ask myself. What could God do through you if you got real? In this nation, in this nation of tremendous need, and in the nations of even greater need, what could God do through you if you got real? I pray that you get real. Get real with one another. Get real with God especially. He's one who never rejects a sinner. But uses sinners mightily. Paul said, I am the worst of all sinners. But God chose me that he might show forth his grace. And brothers and sisters, I'm right in those shoes. I'm the worst of all sinners. This morning I was breaking. before. I knew I was going to come say this, but I have no right to say this. I'm no better than any of you. But I, I plead with you. Be honest with yourself, with your God, with your friends. Fall before him. Acknowledge your sin. Don't play games. And watch the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ energize you to do great exploits for him to be like a Caleb who takes on the giants whether it be the giant of Islam or the giant of Hinduism or the giant of Buddhism or the giant of drugs in this country God desires to use you I believe God desires to use this school and to use the student body here to glorify himself and to turn this world upside down but the first thing you've got to do is be real Let's pray.